0: Good morning in town. Hope you're doing well. My name is Steve Yates, and I am one of the pastors here as well. Um, we are in the middle of a series called Loving, uh, Learning to Love God's World, where we are uh, moving in and out of various biblical books in between some other series that we do. And the intention of this is twofold. One, that you would perhaps investigate some corners of Scripture that you're not used to. Maybe that will help you in reading God's Word. And or that it also shows you that there is this grand arc to Scripture. That there is something deeper than this is a Bible book and this is a Bible book and this is a Bible book and this is the Bible book I don't touch. There really is a wider arc to the Word of God. Thanks, Luke. This morning we look at the book of Amos. And every week, or most every week, uh, one of us comes up to preach God's word and one of the things we do is a sermon introduction. And one of the things we want to do within that introduction is to help you see what it means to connect the relevancy of God's word, the context of God's word, with what is actually happening in our world. And we do that through illustration and through story through historical detail, through referencing current events. This morning we're going to do it slightly differently. But I want to point that out, that while we are doing it differently, we are doing it. That it is not simply um, a thing to do for the sake of doing, but we do what we always do, which is to connect God's word to the real world. Watch this.
1: The scripture reading this morning is Amos chapter five, verses 18 through 24. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Holy God, let our prayer be the same as Amos, the same as Dr. Martin Luther King, that your justice and righteousness would come in this world that it would be full, that we would see your glory. Show it to us even now in your word. We pray in your name. Amen. So I hope you caught it. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like a mighty, ever-flowing stream. Amos chapter 5. It's a fitting introduction to the book of Amos because the book of Amos is a book about justice. More than anything else, it is a book about longing for God's justice to come in this world. And longing for God's justice to come in this world involves a lot of decrying, naming, injustice as well in the world. Of course, Martin Luther King... The civil rights movement, many people are unaware of the the deeply Christian roots and involvement of such an endeavor. That this was an endeavor of naming injustice and of seeking and longing for the justice of God to be expressed in a very specific way at a very specific time. In many respects, this is one of the great jobs of the church period. The God's people have always existed to be a light to the nations. And one of the things a light does is it shows where the gross stuff in your house is. I mean, if you've ever turned a black light on or you've ever finally changed that light bulb in the attic that you never thought you would and suddenly you realize you wish you hadn't. Why? Because it shows the deep mess, the brokenness of that place. And in many respects, the church, both in community and through words, has done that throughout the history of God's people. We're going to be looking at the prophetic justice of God. I want you to to look at this map for just a minute. Look at where Israel is. Many of you are aware of the position of modern-day Israel in the near Middle East, and it's in fairly the same place it was there many, many years ago. At that time, Israel and Judah together made up the people of God. There had been a great civil war after King Solomon, and tragically, the people of God were split into two. But nonetheless, the concept was that in their community, in their way of living, that they would show all the other places, the tribes, the great city-states, who themselves said, We are an example to the world. We are a a utopia of how things should be. Israel, Judah, the people of God, they, through not their, their pompousness or through their great grand buildings, not through pyramids, not through the might of their armies, but through the way they lived their everyday lives in following God, In believing that God was in their midst and directing their paths, they declared to the world what it meant to live as one committed to righteousness and justice, as one meant to live differently in the world. Now, one element of this also was that there was uh, was a vocal connection, a a sense in which this was not only something that was uh, lived out, but also spoken declared. Why? Because if you are a nation that is uh, living in the world and uh, you, you you do not come into Israel, you might not see life. You might not see what is going on. You may hear things. And in fact, in the Minor Prophets, we see these nations hearing things quite often. But what we do not always experience is the idea that they might actually come into the nation and listen. So we have this prophetic voice. And the book of Amos begins with the prophet Amos, himself just a lowly shepherd whom the word of God had come to, declaring to all of these different places, Edom, Gaza, Moab, Ammon, the Phoenician states, Tyre, all of these different places, their own sin, their own brokenness. He does it through a very interesting literary pattern. If you flip back a couple of pages, if you have the book of Amos open, it's right before Jonah, by the way, if you need to find it in your Bible. This pattern will pop up over and over and over again. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of a place, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because, and then outlining one of the injustices, one of the evils that they have done. Now, do, do each of these places, have they simply committed three things or four sins against the Lord? No. It's the idea, if, if you and I were saying, talking about something, and I was saying, well, I believe it's this much, but even if it's more, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the emphasis of three and four harkens back to the idea of Abraham when Abraham was arguing desperately before God for Sodom and Gomorrah on behalf of Lot. And he says, well, if 50 people are found, well, what if 40? What if 30? What if 10? What if only five? And nonetheless, God destroys that place. In the same way, we see, even if it's just three, even if it's four, the transgressions of these places are so great that I will send that the Lord will send judgment upon these places. So in chapter 3 we see for 3 transgressions of Damascus and for 4 I will not revoke the punishment. Chapter in verse 6 for 3 transgressions of Gaza and for 4 I will not revoke the punishment. Verse 9 for 3 transgressions of Tyre and for 4 I will not revoke the punishment. And sometimes, again, that sending language. God sending judgment. But it keeps going. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. A laundry list of brokenness and evil in our world. You and I could probably make a list like this. In fact, we probably should. We should be aware of the brokenness in our world. Sometimes it's very, very easy to turn off the news, to say things are too depressing, to say things are not worth our time or our energy. But it is indeed a a duty, a, a, a blessing of the people of God, even a sad blessing to be aware of how things are supposed to be And the fact that they are not the way they're supposed to be. To mourn this world. And to long for the Lord to do something about it. So you can imagine Amos sitting on a street corner. Declaring in this prophetic voice the justice of God. You can imagine people who know of the evils of these other countries people who maybe in years past had had relatives who had been killed in wars with these countries. You can imagine the scene. Israel, yes, yes, we're longing for justice. Yes, down with the Moabites, down with the Ammonites, down with Tyre, down with Edom. You can imagine how excited that would be. makes me think of MLK again, and I have a dream. You know, I sit there having seen you know, the the whole video, it's a 20-minute long speech, having stood there on the lawn in the National Mall, having stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and saying, oh, that would be incredible to be there, to have been part of that crowd, to do that march. But there's a problem. Historically, there's a very, very little chance I would have been there. Historically, there's a very little chance any of us would have been there. You see, Amos doesn't end with chapter one. The pattern keeps going. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not remote the punishment. And Israel's is quite long. In fact, it's so long that at some point there in verse 10 of chapter 2, the Lord speaking through Amos changes to the second voice. So he stops just referring to these nations objectively as if they are not there. And suddenly speaks, you can imagine Amos speaking to the crowds who now suddenly have their jaws to the floor who at one point had been screaming their applause and excitement and suddenly the Lord through Amos is saying, and you, you also are under judgment. Amos spends one chapter dealing with the problems of everybody else. And the other eight chapters are a list of Israel's sins and Israel's judgments. It's very easy. I want not say very. It can be easy in our culture today to get excited about something. And again, there are things, there are many, many things we should be passionate about. It is increasingly easy in an age of social media to publicly be for or against something, to stand up or at least take a, a hypothetical stance for something. In fact, you, you could, you'd really interpret much of our political action On whatever side, for whatever party, as an element of this type of activism, being for certain policies and against other philosophies, supporting someone, decrying another. But Amos, in keeping with what Jesus says when he says, deal with the log in your own eye before you worry about the speck in your brother's, spends one chapter dealing with a speck and eight Chapters, chewing on a log. It's sobering. And I think it should be sobering. For many of us, we don't like to think about our brokenness. And, and by think about our brokenness, I mean really think about our brokenness. It is not culturally appropriate for most people to be openly arrogant. So very, very few of us would openly say that we are perfect. If you do, I'd love to speak with you, learn from you. (laughs) No. Very, very few of us would say this, right? We, in fact, culturally have made a shift to where it's it's kind of okay to say you're flawed, And even though culturally most of our actions are done in ways of fighting any hypothetical weakness we could have, we nonetheless, because we don't want to seem arrogant, we talk sometimes about tiny flaws that we have, little things. It's like doing a job application. When they say, list your strengths and weaknesses, you say all your strengths and you say, oh, well, I work too hard sometimes. We might say, hey, maybe, you know, I've got a temper. or my marriage isn't perfect, whose is? I struggle. I, in fact, used to use that word so often that I struggle with stuff. That my wife told me to stop using the word struggle because it stopped meaning anything for me. What, what is that? A struggle. This could be me, like, you know, wrestling with God until dawn. Or it could be, like, fighting a head cold. I say that because I think in our, perhaps in our desire, maybe a couple of things, perhaps in our desire to not portray God as an angry God of judgment, perhaps in our desire, perhaps in our our right desire as Christians to emphasize the grace of God, which we're getting there perhaps in our desire to just function in the world, we nonetheless are only conveniently flawed. We're conveniently messy. We're conveniently sinners, conveniently broken, just so much that we can fit it with everyone else and everyone else's minor sins. But Jesus doesn't talk about our sins in minor ways The New Testament does not talk about our sins in minor ways. Jesus, when he refers to my anger problem, he calls me a murderer. When Jesus refers to the instances of my lust, he calls me an adulterer. I am before you as a serial killer and serial adulterer, and so are you. Paul, The Apostle Paul, super-missionary Paul, writer of the New Testament and theologian extraordinaire, calls himself present tense, the chief of sinners. The judgment of God has to sober us. Frederick Buechner, the 20th century author and theologian that Jimmy started quoting earlier, said the gospel, he loved to use this word, he said the gospel is comedy. It's good news. It's happy. It's joyous. But before the gospel can be comedy, it needs to be tragedy. It has to be. Because the gospel is indeed a message of good news, but it begins having to give us a reason why the news is good. It convinces us, it reminds us, it brings us back to who we actually are. We just sang it when the music fades and all is stripped away. I'll be honest, that song, I have a love-hate relationship with that song. And I'm so thankful that Luke and and, Julian picked it. But the song was written in 1995 by um, a man named Matthew Redman. Um, He was a singer in Britain for many, many years. I learned that song in high school Um, and then college and sang it with all the gusto and passion that I could measure. And many of you have similar experiences with songs or hymns. But as songs and hymns and religious ritual go, songs can get old. Religious ritual can get old. Religion can get old. Jesus can get old. And Redmond wrote that song, ironically, as a counter to that very trend in his own church's life. That song would go on to be sung so often and so long in so many churches around the world that I literally have heard of churches that outlawed it for a decade (laughs) so as to not have it lose its meaning. These are the very sins that Amos calls out the people of God for. Sins of hypocrisy in worship. Coming to worship, and in fact, coming to worship even with great feeling, and then going out and forgetting anything that happened in worship. Believing God had deeply blessed them and praising him for those blessings, but then not leveraging those blessings for the poor, for the needy. You see, Israel had itself believed Judah to a lesser extent that because they were doing well at the time this was written, at the time Amos was speaking, because they were doing well and everyone else was having trouble, this must be a sign of God's blessing, of God's favor. But Jimmy said this last week, and it's going to keep popping up again and again and again. Be careful what you wish for The fact that you are doing well does not always mean that you are right in the middle of the will of God. Because less than 30 years later, a young man would grow up in this area here. And unlike all of the old warlords of the Assyrian Empire who were content fighting amongst themselves, he would rise up and say, no, I am going to make a name for myself in the world. And in less than 30 years, Israel would go from a place of blessing to having been completely wiped off the face of the earth, never to come back. Judgment. Amos predicts this. In fact, we don't have time to go through each and every chapter or really emotion too, uh, but... In chapter 7, one of the most deadly signs we see is, is he actually envisions a wall. And he envisions what's called a plumb line, which I did not grow up around hardware, so didn't know at first, but since then I've actually come to see these quite often. If you have a wall, one of the easiest ways to know whether a wall is straight or not is to simply tie a weight to a piece of string and to let it set next to that wall. And just like a level today, you would know whether or not the wall was straight. But there's a problem. How do you straighten a wall that's not straight? Well, while there hypothetically might be a couple of ways that you could do it today, you can still probably talk to most of our construction people, even in this room here, and know just how hard it is. And in ancient times, it was worthless. You couldn't make a wall straight. You destroyed it. Started over. Israel is compared to a crooked wall. Now, this is a downer of a sermon, isn't it? <laughs> but I truly, honestly think in town that it must be a spiritual practice of ours to be sobered by the depth of our sin. It must be. We cannot only hold to the comedy of the gospel because I think often in doing so, we become just like Israel here complacent. We get our ideas of what blessing and service mean tied up, we deeply lose empathy and we begin to become very, very good at shouting down at other people. We throw out pronouncements, and the world hates us for it. And Jesus said the world was going to hate us. I get that. But Lord, please, may the world hate us for what Jesus was hated for, and not for our actions like Israel. The sobering of God, the judgment of God, drives us to mourning. Drives us to actual dependency upon him. Drives us to empathy for other people. And for a longing to make things right. A longing for him to come back. But I want you to do one more thing for me. Turn to chapter 9, if you have your Bible there. Chapter 9, verse 11, Amos changes one more time. Now I have just described eight chapters of mess, of judgment, including multiple illustrations of Israel being so bad that there is no redemption for them. And I have just told you historically that actually happens. Assyria comes in, wipes them out, while Judah will go into exile and come back 200 years later, the 10 tribes of Israel would never return to their home country. So if that is the case, historic fact, why do we see this? In the last day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, repair its breaches, and rebuild it, as in the days of old. They may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. The days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord. Is the promise wrong? No. This is why it's important to dig into the corners of the Bible you've never seen before. It's why the Bible has an ark. Yeah, we have to get to the gospel. Not just we have to get to the gospel, we get to, get to the comedy, the joy, the redemption, the hope. Friends, we need to sit in our sin as, or the knowledge of our sin as a spiritual discipline, but we need to turn to hope. That's what confession is about. That's what community is about. That's what Jimmy spoke of earlier asking whether you've been vulnerable sometime this week. What does it mean if we are a community who so knows the depths of our own sin that our graciousness, our thankfulness to God, our empathy towards other people is not motivated from Southern hospitality, not motivated from a a PC sense that Atlanta is a global international city and so in town wants to get with the program? What if our building project isn't motivated by marketing and the changing of our signs, not just because we want to be fresh and new? What if all of this is for a very, very different reason? Because we know what God has done in us. We know but for the grace of God where we would go, and we know where we go anyway, and that God still loves us. And this leads us day in and day out to passionate thankfulness, relief, hope, joy, steadfastness, not in our own abilities, but in the Lord's. What if we could be this people? not a people situated in a Middle East with a number of warring city-states around us, but a people centered here in this spot in Atlanta and your family centered where it is in your family tree and you centered where you are in your job or in your school, in your vocation. What if you could be known as someone who was actually broken and yet actually had hope? I heard it once said that if you have hypothetical sin, you only need a hypothetical savior. But, friends, in town is a community of people who are broken and who are being redeemed. It means if you are here for any length of time, if you are visiting with us, you will be hurt. We are not that friendly. We are, but we're sinners. You are around us for any length of time. You will hurt us. And together, together we will remind each other that every second of every day, Jesus is rebuilding us and making us new. And that will fuel our singing, and that will fuel our giving, that will fuel our going to Thailand. It will fuel our coming to church when we don't want to wake up It will fuel our desire to serve in the nursery. It will fuel our desire to praise the Lord unto death. That's Amos. And that is what it means, that righteousness pours down like water, and justice like a mighty stream.